Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. If you got 40 minutes or 42 minutes to talk to millions of people every day, would you be able to change politics? Would you be able to take something that was inconceivable and make it inevitable? Well, let's find out, because our guest today does just that. Tucker Carlson is the host of Tucker Carlson Tonight and gets more than three million people to tune in. Tucker, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell me what you're trying to accomplish with your show. I'm very much uh, an instinctive decision maker. I very rarely have a plan of any kind, much less a strategy, which is not the way my brain works. If you wanted someone to start a revolution or remake the government, I'd be the last person to call because I'm, I'm just not systematic in the way that I think at all. Um, really the only time in the 25 or more years that I've been in television that I've set out to try and change a debate, or at least I'm not even sure, I, I'm not even sure my goal was that ambitious, that I set out to take on the prevailing view in the world that I live in, which is conservative right-wing world, um, was on the question of American foreign policy and what's its purpose. And I became convinced for reasons that are not probably interesting enough to share with your listeners uh, 20 years ago that during the Iraq war that the influence of neoconservatism or neoconservative foreign policy, uh, neoconservatism used to refer to a, a whole bunch of different ideas and policies, um, but neoconservative foreign policy, I, I thought, had completely corrupted the Republican Party and steered the entire nation in a wrong and very sad direction. And I was infuriated by it, particularly because, once again, everybody in my world bought into it. You know, the Iraq War was a good idea. You know, we, we need a physical presence in Syria. Bashar al-Assad is somehow bad or, or whatever. You know, just name the terrible idea. And virtually everyone I knew on the right ascribed to it. And I thought, you know, I, I just disagree. And by the way, my my disagreement is a pretty sincere disagreement. I'm not alleging any bad faith on either side. I think, you know, Dick Cheney's daughter and Bill Crystal and all the Max Boot and, you know, all the people who've kind of really hurt this country with their bad ideas sincerely believe in those ideas. So I, I give them credit for that. But I just don't at all. And so I made a conscious decision to say so at every opportunity. I don't think it's had much of an effect. If you can't see, if you really think that backing the Zelensky government in a regime change war against Putin helps the United States or is a virtuous endeavor, if you still think that, you know, I'm not even sure what argument I can make to change your mind. You're, you're a member of a religious cult. This is my view. And I'm just not going to sway you. I don't really understand your religion. I think it's nonsensical. So I don't appear to have any effect at all on most Republican office holders, but I'm not going to stop trying. Okay, so let's talk about that. I mean, uh, you're you're trying to push uh, people on the right. I think those are the people who are listening to you That's most. Right. Uh, to have like this this different view, uh, you're you had kind of a, a wake, uh, an awakening moment um, to get you to view these things differently. What do you think is persuasive to the people on the right? 
on on foreign policy? Well, nothing has been, and I and I will I, I will I mean, look, sure, there are members of Congress who I think I agree with or who agree with me, but the leadership of the party of the Republican Party is completely um, in the sway of, controlled by whoever you describe it, under the influence of conservative neoconservative foreign policy ideas, and. At the outset, you said how, you know, politicians fail to live up to their promises because they they do only what's popular. I actually see it in its mirror image. I, I think the problem is the opposite. I think that politicians again and again don't do what the public wants and instead serve the interests of their donors or their peers. I don't even think it's that grubby and commercial a cause. I don't think they're being paid all the time to say what they're saying. I think that everyone they know and respect, everyone in their little world, this is true of all of us, by the way, thinks one thing, and it's impossible for them not to think that because of the the pressure of the group. So I would like to see our foreign policy a little more informed by what the public wants, since in the end, it's the public that suffers the consequences. It's the citizenry that dies in these wars. It's the citizenry that faces the economic effects of them, which are real even now. And no one seems to care. So, like, what is the polling on the Ukraine war? What percentage of the American population thinks we should be in this to affect regime change in Russia, a nuclear armed power? Like, what? And what's the upside for us? And by the way, what happens to Russia after we kill Putin, which I assume can't be that hard. Killing someone's never that hard. But rebuilding an incredibly volatile. I've never tried. I haven't either, but it doesn't seem to be that hard. People are killed all the time. That's the easy part. You know what I mean? It's like making a baby is the easy part. Making him a decent human being is hard. So, like, I, I I think most people instinctively know that we don't have the fine motor skills to pull off a project like this. It's not clear what the benefit to us is or to the world. And they're not for it. They're instinctively hesitant to do something this radical. But I don't perceive, as a longtime resident of Washington, that anybody making these decisions from Tony Blinken on down gives a what the public thinks. Like they really don't. And so the the irony, which I attempt in my not very persuasive way to point out a lot, which is that we are waging this war, quote, on behalf of democracy, because we believe in this thing called democracy and we're doing it in the least democratic way without any reference at all to what our population wants. Like, does anyone else see the almost hilarious irony in that? Or am I the only one? Well, that's a good question because I really don't know what goes on in congressmen's thoughts. I mean, we work with state policy and what is popular really matters. Now, of course, people have their own ideas uh, about it and how they kind of get their own sense of the population. But what people think about uh, policy really matters to what gets enacted in Lansing. And there seems to be that gets diluted in Washington, as in like there's not as much people providing supervision and their sense of what is popular, I think, is uh, uh, formed by the people around them. And I'm not exactly sure who's listening. Well, I am. I am. I actually know how this works because I lived there my whole life. My dad worked for the federal government in the foreign policy sphere. So I saw it. And one of the main means of control uh, is the intelligence briefing, which is the way that uh, our elected leaders get their information about the rest of the world through intel briefings. And so people from the executive branch agencies come over with a binder and they say, here's what we think we know, or, or more often, here's what we know about the rest of the world. Now, there's no way to verify whether any of this is true. 
of course, for the average person, even for the average member of the House Intel Committee. Like, how would you know? You're relying on NSA, CIA. No, I'm serious. Defense intelligence. Like, this information is coming from where? You can't verify it. And so, ultimately, you're at the mercy of these executive branch agencies. That's a different branch of government. And in this case, like, Republicans running the Congress and the House are at odds with that branch of government. But they're still totally dependent on it to inform their views on foreign policy. Domestic policy is different. If we're arguing about homelessness, I don't need a briefing to notice the people passed out on the sidewalk in front of my office. I just, you know what I mean? But if we're talking about Ukraine, like how am I supposed to know what's going on in Ukraine? I wait until someone in a necktie with a binder tells me and the level of manipulation that's possible. In, in fact, that takes place at that point of contact between the, the intel agencies and members of Congress is like insane. And very few members of Congress are self-confident enough, in some cases they're not bright enough, to understand how thoroughly they're being manipulated. And it just freaks me out watching it because I'm not super sophisticated, but I'm 53 and I've done this my whole life and I lived in that city my whole life. Like, I know how it works. I said to Michael McCall, who is the chairman, I think, you know, he's the head foreign affairs guy in the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. And he, I was talking to him one day and he's not super bright, but, but st- even, but he's not like, you know, an idiot. And I said to him, how do you know that? Oh, my briefer told me that. Really? Do you think it's possible you're being at all manipulated by the intel agencies? Has that occurred to you? He's like, well, no, they had four different sources. Have you talked to the sources? Can you even identify the sources? Like you're being totally used. You're an idiot. And I told him, I said, and I'm quoting, you're an idiot. And I, I think he knows he's an idiot, but it doesn't stop him from being manipulated. Like, that's the head guy in the Republican Party. What? So multiply that times, well, 535, and you have the Congress. That's just one reason why they're completely out of touch with reality. And and I would say the other, the other reason is they have no competing information. So if I'm trying to understand something, no matter what it is, I want all the information I possibly can get. If I want to understand a crime, I want to read the criminal's confession or his denial. I want both sides so I can get a fuller picture and then I can assess what I think is true. In the case of this war, there's never been an information lockdown like this. If you were interested, if you dared admit you were interested in the Russian position or the other half of the war, remember, it'd be very hard to find it. Like you can't and you'd be afraid to tell anyone you watched it because then you'd be a tool of Putin. It's the um, the the total manipulation of information it has reached like it's kind of end stage, I would say, and it's bearing exactly the fruit you would expect, which is distortion, dishonesty, detachment from reality. People making the decisions have no real idea what's going on. It, it's it's freaking me out to watch it. It's just like full North Korea. And it's going to feel pretty special to be a congressman who gets these special briefings. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, like you get privileged information. Um, and I think that's got to be a powerful reason why, at least on these foreign policy issues, there's so much similarity or convergence. I mean, these are not exclusively, and I don't, I don't want to be mean or unfair, but, you know, a lot of these people got into politics in the first place because they wanted affirmation and they wanted to feel important and the job doesn't pay anything, relatively speaking. For a high prestige job, it pays nothing. And it's very difficult, very difficult job. Even someone like Mike McCall is like working way longer hours than I've ever worked. You know, they're constantly on the road. They're away from their families. It's a very hard job. So why are you doing it? 
Well, either to, you know, make the country better, which is hard to do from Congress, or because it's really important to you to have people call you by a title and hold the door for you and to have some intern drive you around. Like they're, they're motivated by kind of sad little desires, kind of pedestrian desires for, for status. And, um, people like that who are hollow inside, and they're not all like this, but a lot of them are people like that are very easy to manipulate. Very, very easy because they're weak. Mm. Well, it's uh, you said that you you don't know what you're trying to do with your show and you're relying on your instincts. What forms your instincts? Conversations with other people. I, 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 I you know, I live, I say I live in Washington. I, I live there, well, actually 35 years, but I don't live there anymore. And uh, I live in, in much more rural America. And so I don't, you know, I don't run into people at lunch in the way that I did my whole working life. So I make an extra effort to communicate constantly with a huge, huge uh, group of people. I think a, as close as I can get to a cross-section of people, not just all people like me, I actually believe in diversity in the literal sense. I think it's important to talk to people who disagree with you, who have different life experiences, who are doing different things in different places. Geography matters. I talk to people from different countries. I talk to hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people every week. And that informs my view. It's not a perfect system, but it's as, it's as I've, I mean, this is, it's all I do with my life is what I'm doing. So I've really thought a lot about it and I've tried to construct a system that gets me as much information, as many perspectives, as much wise thinking as I can. And this is what I've come up with. And, um, I think it works well. So I constantly am getting just this, really this tidal wave of information. And from that, I try and, I try and glean like the interesting stuff, the stuff that jumps out at you, you know? Uh, can you tell me about one of those conversations that uh, helped form one of your views? Oh, shit. I mean, this is a daily problem. I could put on the sexy glasses and go through them. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I j just in the past, like, I, I mean, I text with a lot of people. I mean, I don't think I have a, a very different view from most people. But like, for example, I had no idea that there was, because I wouldn't know, uh, a fire at a uranium facility um, today um, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Okay. So normally, I mean, that's just literally the last text I got before we went on this. There have been a lot of fires and explosions, a couple plane crashes, um, unexplained bad things happening to uh, manufacturing facilities, food processing plants, and critical infrastructure like energy substations. Um, and then, needless to say, we now know uh, to our rails. There have been, according to the Transportation Secretary, a thousand derailments in the last calendar year. That's a lot. So what is going on? Is there is there a pattern here? I mean, a lot of my job is pattern recognition. You know, like I saw this here, I saw this here, I saw that there. Do they add up to something bigger than their parts? Is this a trend? Is this is this something that we should pay attention to? I mean, it's a, you know, 300 and probably 60 million at this point people in our country. It's a continent and there's too much going on. And my job, as I see it anyway, is to try and make some sense of it. You could never be comprehensive, but to try and figure out like, what are the big things happening? What should you know about? I, you know, occasionally we break news. I try, but we're not in, you know, I'm a primetime cable show. So really my job day to day 
is to try and figure out what does it mean? You know, you saw all this stuff, but what does it add up to? And um, so in the case of the fire at the uranium plant, you know, fires break out at all kinds of different places, including uranium plants, I guess. But coming on the heels, as this story does, of a dozen or two other stories kind of like that in the past, I don't know, two months since it became obvious we blew up the most important natural gas pipeline in the world. Maybe maybe there's a connection. I have certainly no evidence of it, and I wouldn't claim that I did. But I think it's worth thinking about, and people should know about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, it. Uh, but this is why I think daily political commentary seems like it's an impossible job. Yeah. Is because stuff happens, and you have to figure it out. And as the daily commenter, you've got to establish an opinion about these things no, without a no, lot of time no. to invest. I used to have that no? job. No, I, well, of course, I, uh-huh. I know what you're talking about because I've done that job for years, mm. years and years. I hosted a show, co-hosted a show on CNN called Crossfire, and it was an ensemble show. There were, there were other hosts. There was another host across from the table. So, you know, you'd have to agree on what the news was, or you would have producers say, this is on page one of the New York Times, like we're doing this formulate an opinion. And most of the time I had an opinion. That's why I'm in cable news. I have a lot of opinions, but other times I I have an opinion or I I wasn't sure I wasn't, you know, I I don't know. What do I think of the law of the sea treaty? I, you know, I don't know, but my current job is not that I'm the only anchor. I, I decide what I think is important. I only pick things that I have something to say about. I mean, I've kind of rigged my own game a little bit because you know, if I don't have a clear thought on it, I'm not going to address it. I don't have to. No one's making me. So it's a little bit easier than you're describing, honestly, because I'm not responding to prompts. I'm writing the prompts and then responding to them, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Uh, why do you think people want to listen to what you have to say? Well, I'm not sure people <laughs> I mean, like, you know, there are, as noted, three and a half hundred million people in this country and we get, you know, 1% or something. So most people don't want to listen to what I say is the truth. But, um, you know, I think the consequences of political decisions are much higher than they ever have been in my lifetime anyway. And so when there's more at stake, people have a higher level of interest. There are also a lot of other people, maybe wiser people, who've decided I can't control any of it and I don't want to hear it. And I understand that completely. Um, But in general, I think politics uh, is more important. And that's not a sign of health at all. You want to live in a country like Switzerland where, you know, maybe people aren't sure who runs it, you know, because does it really matter? No, it's Switzerland. Like it's going to be the same next year as it was this year, pretty much. And that's the ideal if you believe in stability, which above all I do. So um, but that's not what we have. We have a very volatile country by American standards, probably not by Venezuelan standards, but by American standards, very volatile. And so people want to know what it means. I want to know what it means. You know, and most of the time I don't. How do you figure out? Uh, how do you figure it out then? Well, I take a sauna every day, every day without any exceptions. So that's a huge part of my thinking. Um, you know, everyone has different means of making decisions or getting clarity or whatever. Some people go for a run. Um, I had back surgery, so I don't, but, uh, I, yeah, I take a sauna every day. And I guess another way to put it, it's not even about the sauna. It's about, you know, I think silence, putting down the phones. And I mean, for 15 minutes, I mean, I'm very much not in silence and very much distracted and, 
I, I would not at all claim to have gone clear, as they say in Scientology, but I do reserve a short window every day for silence. And that is something I benefit from enormously. You know, like, it's just, I, I, I think Malcolm, I never read it, but apparently Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about this. Like, why do the deepest insights come to you in the shower? Because you've released control over those thoughts for a minute. You're not trying to find the answer, but on some level you're working it out. And then they just appear. Well, that, you know, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon that happens to everybody. And I just have tried to incorporate it into my daily routine because I, I, I just get so, so much out of it, you know? So that's, so like in the morning, I'll think by, by 11 or so, 11.30, I try to have figured out what the lead is of the show. That's really the thing that I work on. You know, it's an hour, so there are a lot of million brilliant people working on the show and doing their thing and doing it much better than I could do it. So my thing on the show is really the first 20 minutes. You know, that's, I have control over it and I, I care about it. I'm really focused on it. And um, so my whole day is really devoted to figuring out what this one thing is. And it's not, by the way, it's not a very hard job. I mean, if you organize your whole life around 20 minutes, <laughs> you can probably do it. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it would take a lot of practice. I give presentations every once in a while, and they take a lot of practice, even if it's just a 20-minute thing about the state of Michigan's economy. But with enough practice, you can do Yeah, tr try doing that every day for 25 years. You'd probably figure, you'd probably figure it out. Yeah. If it's not that hard. Can only hope so. All right, so... Uh, well, let's talk about, like, do you have, like, a lead that, that you've done that uh, is near and dear to your heart? No, because, you know, I do five a week, and I take two weeks off a year, and so that's a lot. That's 50. I'm not good at math, but whatever, 50 times five is 250, I guess. A lot. And I don't. But, um, you know, so far this week, we've done two. Today is Wednesday. We're doing one tonight. And, uh, as always, but uh, Monday we uh, I wrote a lead about Ukraine and trying to. St I mean, my in my job, everyone you know, everyone has a different role, right? If you're in the, I don't think I'm really in the news business, but whatever business I'm in, everyone does a different thing. My th I try not to get caught up in the details because I think very often they obscure the truth, and that's not true for everybody. You know, there's a show that does details, and God bless them, but I don't. So the story for me in Ukraine is the alignment between Russia and China. Like what? Wait, China is helping Russia fight the United States in Ukraine. So this is look, American foreign policy for a hundred years was laser focused on making certain that the great powers did not align against us. This is like statecraft 101. Just make sure your enemies don't get together or else you're shafted, right? Because they've got big, you know, they got more throw weight than you do. So if you have China and Russia aligned against the United States, that's the world's largest landmass and the world's largest natural gas reserves, plus the world's largest economy and the world's largest population. So if they come together, that's not good. That means they've got a huge percentage of world trade. It means they control trade routes. And it means ultimately there will be a military alliance because military alliances follow political alliances and economic alliances, obviously. So that's really scary. Russia has the most nuclear-tipped ICBMs. China has the biggest navy. Like, you don't want that. And that's why Nixon went to China, to make certain that Mao and the Soviets stayed apart. This is, like, it's totally basic. 
And now, because we've decided that Zelensky, who is a transparent destroyer and thug, like a, tr- like a, tr- a true bad guy, it's not a defense of Putin to say that. This is not a fight between good and evil. It's much more complicated, as most things are. But because we, we're all in on this guy, Zelensky, who's banning Christian churches, um, we have succeeded in doing the one thing that like, generations of diplomats worried about, which is aligning Russia with China. So um, that's a huge headline. That's the end of American hegemony. I don't know why no one else is paying attention to this, but that's how I feel about it. And that's what I said. And I thought it was true. And I was grateful to have a chance to say it out loud. Uh, for these kind of uh, views that you're you're proposing, um, you know, even on this one, you're one of the few people out there who's saying that. Um, you know, like uh, there's a lot of people that are they're giving reasons why um, uh, why the United States needs to do more uh, do more for, uh, to support uh, uh, Ukraine and spend uh, spend more money and give them more military assistance. Um, why do you think your uh, why do you think your views are so different, even though they seem obvious to you? I haven't the faintest idea, actually, and I always want you know you don't immediately want to impugn the motives of people who disagree with you. Um, because sometimes they have very noble motives. And I think a lot of people who disagree with me do have noble motives. You know, they're happy to dismiss me as a tool of Putin, which obviously I'm, I've never even been to Russia. I'm as American as, I don't have another passport. I mean, it's, it's what I'm not going to defend myself. It's, it's, uh, it's ludicrous and it has no effect on me. I can tell you that, but I, I won't do that to them. I don't think that they're all taking money from Zelensky or, you know, they're all being paid by Raytheon. I don't, uh, that's a part of it, but that's not the full answer. I think that as you saw with COVID and as you saw with BLM, people's best instincts or altruistic instincts are being used against them to get them to support something that's bad for them in their country. Um, But beyond that, I can't really say because it's just so obviously not working. We've spent $113 billion dollars Supporting a side we've told the public, which has no way of knowing the truth because everything's censored, that Ukraine was winning. Ukraine is, of course, losing. That's why they need more money. Um, and we watched the aims of the war go from kick the Russians back to the where they were last February, which seemed like a fine aim to me. I was never against that. They invaded the country. Get out. I get it. Now the aim is to take Crimea, which is Russian. It's a Russian port. If you do that, there will be a nuclear war. Why, why should Zelensky have control of Crimea? He didn't control Crimea. I mean, it's a Russian port. Like, this is crazy. And then let's put our M1 tanks in Red Square. What? Okay, so now we're talking end of the world stuff. So I don't see why that's not obvious to everybody. I really don't. I, I'm, I'm again. I'm trying to be fair and empathetic and try to understand why people disagree with me. I, I don't think they're evil, but. That's so crazy that I don't really know how to respond. So luckily I don't have to. I don't, I'm not in charge of anything. I'm just a talk show host. So I'm just going to continue saying it and like, shut up, you're for Putin. Well, you know, again, the only thing I care about is the United States. I have four children, you know, I'm not leaving. So something that hurts our country is really scary to me, especially if it hurts it in a major way like aligning Russia and China. And I would like to do that interview with like Mitch McConnell, who is this such a loathsome person, you know, and I will impugn his motives. And just to be clear, this is a guy who got rich from China, 
who has pure contempt for his own voters. It's in a true. You really think the voters of Kentucky, given all options, would choose Mitch McConnell? Like if, there's something wrong with our system if it elevates ghouls like that. Um, but you know, Mitch McConnell telling you that this is the most important struggle ever. Imagining he's had this kind of sad, useless life. And now he gets to think at age 80 that he's Winston Churchill and his life has significance. I do think that's what it's really about. It's elderly people trying to sort of justify their own wasted lives and sort of their kind of sad Hollywood version of history becomes their guide. And like they saw Saving Private Ryan and they could imagine themselves. I mean, it's also pathetic. It's like hard even to articulate because it makes me feel sad to say it. But I do think that's part of what's going on. But I would love to ask Mitch McConnell, hey, partly through your efforts, China and Russia are now allied against the United States. That means over time, it means, well, the end of the petrodollar, done. It means the end of the U.S. dollar's reserve currency. Really, what happens then? Our debt becomes actually unsustainable. It becomes the end of free trade around the world, which is guaranteed by the U.S. military. It's not an accident. We never had it before the Second World War. We only have it now because the U.S. military guarantees it. That's over. Like, you did that. How do you, was it worth it to, like, meet Zelensky, that handsome little man? It's like, I just can hardly believe this is happening. I just feel so sad about it. You know, I almost don't want to do my show sometimes because I'm like, this is just too depressing. Uh, how do you choose, how do you view your show's success? I mean, what, how, sorry, I don't, how do you judge your show's success? I don't. I never no? do. I never, I never... Yeah, the one thing you don't want to do if you work in a business where people are looking at you is look at yourself, ever. It just makes you insecure. You know, self-awareness leads to self-obsession, which leads to misery. So narcissism, which is really self-hate posing as self-love, is is the main kind of work-related injury that the talk show hosts suffer. And um, I don't want I don't. Want well, let me. Let me put it in another way, because uh, I think you'd probably consider it a victory if uh, uh, there was a lot more skepticism about America's global adventurism. I mean, wouldn't you think I that would be a good I don't know if I consider science? it a victory for me. I mean, again, I work in a business that so encourages you to think about yourself constantly, and literally your face is on TV. So if you don't take extraordinary steps, you will decide that everything is about you. Okay, and you will become desperately unhappy and you will alienate the people you love and you will become a miserable, sad person, period. That's just true. And I'm not guessing because I've done this my whole life and I know everyone else who does it because it's a tiny world. I know everybody really well. And I see what's happened to them. I'm not going to let that happen to me. So I'm just, you know, I've got a lot of eccentricities that are based in my desire not to let that happen to me. And one of them is I just I never think about the show except putting on the show. But I never think like, oh, wow, you know, we're, first of all, the second you think, you know, God punishes stuff like that. The second you're like, oh, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm so powerful. Um, then you get knocked really hard off your pedestal. I believe that. I mean, I, I've seen it like about a million times. So no, but I do hope my show not connected to this hope that people I mean, I'm not suggesting violence here, but like on some level, politically, I hope, rise up against this. Like there are a million things happening in America right now, but there's only one of them that could destroy America in a physical sense, and that's nuclear war. And we're closer than we've been ever 
right now. That's not an overstatement. And I'm hardly a peacenik, by the way. I didn't grow my, my dad helped wage the Cold War. I mean, I grew up, my default position is not like give peace a chance at all. I'm for war in some circumstances, but this war is purely destructive. Nobody wins. And the main loser after Ukraine and Russia will be the United States. And I just, I can't, I, I actually, honestly, since you're, you're pushing me on this, I think it's a form of suicide is what I really think. I think people know I am not a genius and this is super obvious to me. So I think in the end, people get what they want. They do. They get the spouse they want, even if it's a bad spouse. They get the outcomes they want, whether they're aware of it or not. People get what they want in the end. And if you're pursuing a goal that will destroy the United States, you want the destruction of the United States. I think that people commit suicide. So do countries. And I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, Tucker, thanks for coming on, helping us understand what's within the Overton window. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.